Hello and welcome. This is the Book of Acts by Word Online. Well, I hope you've listened to the earlier episodes just before this one because it's a continuing story and we're still part the way through a very, very dramatic incident that's taking place in Paul's life on his third missionary journey as he's come to Jerusalem, having traveled far and wide uh, in Greece and Turkey. Uh, He's now back in the city of Jerusalem and when he arrived in the city, uh, very quickly a conflict arose and we've described this conflict in the last two episodes arising from the fact that he came into the Jewish temple and some people who'd seen him uh, in other contexts in Asia Minor in southern Turkey uh, and then saw him in Jerusalem uh, started making false accusations against Paul about him disrespecting the Jewish religion and the Jewish law and the Jewish temple and this produced a riot in the temple This caused the intervention of the Roman soldiers who came and prevented Paul being beaten up and possibly beaten to death. Uh, And then the Romans were wanting to interrogate and punish Paul, but they hesitated to do that when they found that he was a Roman citizen. So the situation we find uh, in this episode is a very tense and complex standoff between different groups in Jerusalem concerning Paul and his Christian faith. Paul has asked the Roman soldiers to allow him to speak to the crowd, having arrested him, which he did, and he gave his testimony, his story about how he became a Christian through encountering the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road, and then that provoked a really strong reaction from the crowd, hostile to Paul, and now the Roman commanding officer is trying to work out what to do with Paul. Next, the Romans were always concerned to keep law and order, and they were always worried that the Jews were very argumentative and there could be rioting and conflict, civil conflict, very easily. They're always worried about people starting rebellions in the province of Judea. So that's why they're nervous about Paul. What sort of leader was he? What sort of agitator was he? What was he representing? Was he a military threat? Was he going to raise up some rebels? Was he going to cause a big conflict with other Jews? They weren't really sure. And so the commander is left in a very puzzled frame of mind at the end of the events that we've described in the last two episodes. And this is what we (coughs) find in the first verse that we're just going to read briefly as we introduce this episode. Acts 22 verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. The commander is puzzled. He doesn't really know what's going on. And he decides to release Paul. So he's no longer going to be uh, in the custody of the Romans formally. He's not going to punish him at that point. He doesn't know what's going on. He realizes he's a Jew. He's a Roman citizen. He's a religious leader of some sort. He's in an argument with his fellow Jews and he decides the best thing is to 
have a debate between Paul and the religious ruling authorities. And the commander thinks that he will sit in on this debate and be able to work out what's going on. Now that sounds a very sensible idea, doesn't it? And so we need now just to think about what we mean by this organization known as the Sanhedrin. Now, if you've been following uh, this uh, study of the book of Acts, or if you're familiar with the material, you'll know about the Sanhedrin. But just to remind you briefly, the religion of the Jews, Judaism, was led by the high priest and the priestly group um, who ran the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And the high priest chaired a committee or a council of 70 members that had ruling authority over the conduct of the Jewish religion. So they met regularly and they made decisions about all sorts of different things. They were based in Jerusalem. The high priest was in charge of this group. They had some Pharisees, some Sadducees, some religious teachers on board and some other priests and there were 70 in this group. Now the Romans recognized that it was a very powerful organization much respected by the Jews and they recognized how much the temple meant to the Jews which is why they allowed the Sanhedrin to rule over the geographical area of the uh, temple and the immediate uh, area surrounding it in the middle of Jerusalem. The Roman soldiers rarely went in there and they were able to run things exactly as they wanted. They had their own coinage, their own currency, and they had their own regulations and there were certain places that non-Jews weren't allowed to go in the temple compound. And the Roman officer of course knew all this and he witnessed what was going on in the temple day by day because he was stationed in the uh, fortress next door overlooking the temple compound. So he thought, right, we need to have a proper conversation about this. The discussion between Paul and the crowd in the temple earlier on had been uh, uh, very emotional very spontaneous, very disorganized, and hadn't led anywhere. So he thought, let's have a responsible conversation. Let's get Paul to talk to the high priest. I'm going to listen in, and I'll decide what I'm going to do with Paul, uh, if there's any issue to follow up or not. It sounds to me as though this is a bit of a religious conflict that probably has nothing to do with the Roman authority. So that's what the commander was thinking when he released Paul and arranged for this discussion to take place between Paul and the Sanhedrin. What we must remember is that Paul was remembered by the Sanhedrin because he used to be associated with them and on their side and serving their cause before he got converted to Christianity. So there's some bad memories of Paul because he was somebody who switched sides and no longer supported what they were doing. So when Paul came in front of them, that memory was in their mind and would have influenced their thinking. And so they met. And what happened is described in the first 10 verses of Acts 
23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law. Let you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, for it's written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand in trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Well... The commander hoped for some kind of peaceful resolution, and it didn't happen. In fact, you can see how complicated the situation became, and the commander had to intervene yet again, because these disputes kept flaring up. What's going on in this story? Paul starts out by proclaiming his innocence. He served God in good conscience to this day. He's basically saying, I'm, I'm innocent of any wrongdoing. I'm a wholehearted server of the living God, the God of Israel. And then comes the first surprise that the high priest who's chairing this meeting orders immediately for Paul to be struck on the mouth. Now, this is an insult. This is a symbolic action to tell people to shut up and be quiet. But the high priest is an interesting character. You'll remember that when Jesus was crucified, the high priest's name was Caiaphas. This is one of his successors, Ananias, who was high priest for 10 or 12 years. But it's interesting to note that the Jewish historian Josephus who wrote about this man said that he had a very 
quick temper. He got angry very easily. Now that's a fascinating insight. And this is written by an author describing his behavior in many other circumstances unrelated to this incident. But it's exactly what happens here. He just became angry very, very quickly and he tried to silence Paul and humiliating him humiliate him by getting several people to strike him on the mouth, cancelling out his words and his testimony. But Paul responded as strongly as the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. But then people say, do you realise that's the high priest? And Paul realises that he too has overreacted emotionally. And he steps back, acknowledging that you shouldn't speak evil of the person who is the respected community leader. Now, this is a very remarkable incident. We can assume that Luke, the author, is also an eyewitness here. It's described very vividly as if he's there with Paul. And he's been an eyewitness all the way through the story up to this point. So there's no reason to doubt that Luke didn't actually see this happen himself. So the whole event started out really badly. The, com the Roman commanders hoped for some rational discussion to try and work out what's going on was completely um, unfulfilled. They couldn't get a rational discussion going. But it's interesting to see what Paul does next. He takes the conversation in a different direction. And in verse 6, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee descended from the Pharisees. I stand in trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now he said this very deliberately because he knew that this ruling council was divided on the issue of belief in the physical resurrection of the dead. Because <clears throat> although the Pharisees and the priests, generally speaking, believe very much in the resurrection of the dead, which is spoken of in the Old Testament in, in a few instances, but not in a developed way, although they believe that, one group, the Sadducees, did not believe in the bodily, physical resurrection from the dead of those who believe. They didn't believe in that. And this is exactly what Luke explains. Many of the supernatural things about the Jewish faith they were doubtful about. They saw it more as a faith for this life. And we see the same belief system in place when this, these same Sadducees, this same group, questioned Jesus all those years before, just before Jesus was executed. The Sadducees asked Jesus a question about the resurrection to try and trip him up. I wonder whether you remember this. Matthew 22, verse 24. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having any children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were 
seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Now, this was a trick question. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They thought it was absurd, and they thought they could demonstrate the absurdity of the idea of the physical resurrection by explaining the situation. Well, who could she possibly be married to? Which of these seven brothers during the resurrection? But Jesus replied to the Sadducees, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. In other words, they didn't believe what the Old Testament said about the resurrection and they didn't believe in God's miraculous power to raise people from the dead. So that's the way of thinking of the Sadducees that Paul encounters in this episode here in the Sanhedrin. And what happens immediately that Paul raises this question is that it provokes an argument amongst the members of the Sanhedrin. The focus comes away from Paul and onto them. They're in disagreement about the doctrine of the resurrection. It's almost as if Paul has done this deliberately to show the weakness of the Sanhedrin. He's dividing the opposition. And so they enter into a period of time where they're not debating with Paul, they're debating with each other and the commanding officer is looking on, the Roman officer thinking, what on earth's going on here? I thought this was between Paul and the religious authorities, but now they're arguing amongst themselves. And he decided that this could get out of hand because once, there are, once they finish arguing amongst themselves, they might then together turn on Paul and say, well, it's all your fault that we had this argument in the first place and the commander could see this could happen. So he said to his men, Go and get Paul from down there in the debate. Uh, let's put him in prison again. Now he's only just released him. But now he's taking him back into prison again because he can't get any sense out of this discussion. He can't get any clear answers to his questions. Now, Romans continually were puzzled about Jews, and they often noticed how argumentative they were. And here is a classic example of that argumentative situation. So, at the end of the story, Paul is back in the barracks where he was before. He's back in prison. What's going to happen next? Well, this episode ends in a very moving way, actually. Because all the way through the time as Paul has been heading to Jerusalem, everybody along the journey has saying, be careful, Paul, it's going to be difficult in Jerusalem. Be careful. Agapus the prophet, church groups, possibly the unmarried daughters of Philip the Evangelist in Caesarea, all prophetically communicating with him about the dangers, and yet Paul felt, I've got to go through with this. Have you ever had that feeling in life? Something difficult you've just got to go through? God's saying you've got to go through it. Don't avoid it. 
God might be speaking to you about that right now as, I, as, I'm, as I'm talking about this. But that was the feeling that Paul had. And his faith was that God would protect him even in a difficult situation. And so that's why this, the way this episode ends is most moving. And just in one verse, verse 11, we have this amazing statement. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I think that's amazing. He's in prison. And he's no idea what's going to happen to him. Will the Romans ever let him out? Will they punish him? Will they try him? Will they hand him over to the Sanhedrin, hand him over to the Jews? Will they expel him from the country? He's in a position of complete vulnerability, and yet God speaks to him. This might be a dream or a vision, but whichever it was, there was this feeling that God himself was there. The Lord was speaking and saying, first of all, Take courage. That's one of the most common things that God says to his disciples. Have courage. Don't be afraid. And that's a message for you as you're listening to this. The Holy Spirit may well be speaking to you in your circumstances, which might be difficult. Paul's in very difficult circumstances, but you might be in very difficult circumstances. Take courage, says the Holy Spirit. Take courage, Paul. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome also. This means your life isn't going to end in Jerusalem. This isn't a wasted experience. Paul might have thought it's a wasted experience because he was free to travel and move around uh, for the previous period of time, be very fruitful going to different churches and visiting churches, planting churches, preaching, and now he's confined in a prison cell in the fortress of the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem. Surely that's a waste, isn't it? But no. From there will come another opportunity. He will fulfill his great ambition to go to Rome. And this ambition has been the driving force behind the events of this whole series of six. But because Paul said when he was in Ephesus in Acts 19 verse 21, which I've quoted several times in previous episodes, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also a sense of conviction that he needed to get to the center of the Roman Empire and exercise influence by being there. That was his conviction. And now God is saying to him, no one's going to stop you. You're going to get there. You're going to get to the place that you need to go. That didn't mean it was going to be easy. And as we will see in the next episode, Things go from bad to worse because there's a plot to kill Paul, to assassinate him. 
but that, that's the next episode and we'll come to that next time. Meanwhile, we pause now and we think, what can we learn from this episode? First of all, my number one reflection is to reaffirm God is sovereign over our lives. If, even when things are totally out of control, and you might feel things are totally out of control in your life, he is sovereign. Paul was saved from death here because there was more for him to do. God will always preserve your life and energy if there's more work for you to do. The second thing that I learned from this passage is the risk of strong emotions and particularly of anger. There's a very interesting episode of anger here because the high priest is very angry and we, we know from other evidence that he's quick-tempered and very quick to get angry. But we also notice that Paul is quick to get angry and he regrets it. He over-responded. He acknowledged he shouldn't have attacked the high priest, which reminds me of his own teaching later on in Ephesians 4 verse 26. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Deal with anger effectively and quickly. Don't let it simmer and don't let evil powers use long-term anger as a means of undermining your Christian life. So that's a second reflection. My third reflection is about the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul emphasizes it here. Christianity is built on two very important foundations concerning this idea. The first one is that Jesus himself rose again from the dead physically. It's a physical event. This is not a ghost, a spirit, a hallucination, or anything like that. This is a physical event. And the Gospels describe the resurrection of Jesus as a very powerful physical event. But the second thing that Christianity affirms is that those who believe in Jesus will experience a physical resurrection in the same type of reality that Jesus had himself. And Paul is focusing on the doctrine of the resurrection here, which divided the Jewish people but unites the Christian church fundamentally. And so I end with a reminder of what Paul really believed about the resurrection of the body by just quoting to you three verses from 1 Corinthians 15. That's verses 42 to 44. This is Paul's briefest and simplest description of the resurrection and the difference between the resurrection body and our current physical body. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, 
It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Let's just reflect on these words for a moment. Physical life now, says Paul, has four characteristics. Your bodies have these four characteristics. Perishable, that means prone to decay, disease, decline, aging and death. It is in dishonor, that means it's tainted by sin. Our bodies are affected by the sinful actions that we carry out. It's a body in weakness. In other words, we're limited in strength and capacity. And it's a natural body. In other words, it's an ordinary human body, like an unbeliever. An unbeliever's body is just like a believer's body in this life. But the resurrection body has four characteristics. Imperishable, that is in a state of permanent physical wholeness. It is in glory, that means filled with God's glory. His presence is going to fill our bodies in a miraculous way. It is in power, that is filled with supernatural power. It goes from strength to strength in the eternal life. And it's a spiritual body, meaning empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now there's much more we could say on that subject. But Paul focused on the resurrection as a key belief of Christianity in this episode. Well, this particular story isn't finished. There's another dramatic development that takes place in the next episode, and I hope you'll join us for it. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.